Welcome to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you. Today's guest is Lindsay Travinsky. She is a PhD candidate in history at the University of California, Davis. Her dissertation is titled, The Presidential Cabinet, Military, State, and British Origins, 1700 to 1800. She received the James C. Reese Fellowship on the Leadership of George Washington here at the Washington Library for the 2015-2016 academic year, as well as numerous other research fellowships. Today, she will discuss her dissertation, and you will learn more about the origins of the President's Cabinet, how Washington's past experiences shaped his Cabinet, and the effectiveness of his first two Cabinets. And now, Ms. Travinsky and Dr. Bradburn. So hello, it's Doug Bradburn here at the Washington Library at Mount Vernon, and I'm joined today by Lindsay Zhirinsky, who's a PhD candidate at the University of California, Davis. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. So Lindsay, you're finishing up a long fellowship here in our program. Talk a little bit about the fellowship you had and what kind of work you were doing while you are here. Absolutely. So I've been fortunate enough to be here for six months. Um, this is my last week. I will be very sad to go. Uh, it's been a great experience having the opportunity to focus on work for that long, uninterrupted, and have access to sources. And then one of the other benefits that is sort of unexpected, but one of the top three, I would say, is just being surrounded by people who are excited about history and excited about work and inspired about their own projects helps to kind of bring you out of the rut if you're stuck on something. And so I've loved getting to know other people and having that sort of energy around me. It's really been great. Yeah, I was a long-term fellow as well, although I, I was doing it right after I finished. I was a, more just a postdoc fellowship, and I, I felt the same way. It was just a, a really great opportunity to be reinvigorated by people that you didn't, you know, weren't part of your graduate student context as much. Yeah, absolutely, and there are times when writing and researching can be lonely and frustrating, and so being able to talk to other people about their work and get to know other projects, it's just such a great experience. One of my advisors called it the salt mines. <laughs> It can definitely feel that way sometimes. Yeah, uh, scholarship is an isolating challenge. All right, so you're at the UC Davis, and you're finishing up. You're going to be defending your dissertation soon. Hopefully, yes. Uh, Why did you choose to work at UC Davis? I'm always interested for potential graduate students out there, for people who don't know anything about the process. How did you decide where you wanted to do your work? Um, well, history is sort of a unique field in that it depends really on who you're working with, not the program um, so much. And so I went to Davis to work with Alan Taylor, who's now at UVA, but he is still um, my, the director of my committee. And I wanted to work with someone who had um, a great track record of scholarship and uh, the ability to place students, and also someone who was genuinely interested in having a relationship um, and didn't want to just sort of assign me to do a project and wanted to talk to me about my work. So um, I met with him ahead of time and we had a really good rapport and so that was where I chose to work. 
So, well, that's great. So Lindsay is writing a dissertation on the first presidential cabinet. Now, how did you come to your project? That for some students, it's a, a long and sad affair. And, you know, your project is something that's going to be with you a long time. So how did you, uh, how did you find this? That's a great question. Um, I did so in a very organic way. I knew that I was interested in political history, and I knew that I was interested in the first administration. And I originally started looking at what biographies there were of the different people. Mm. And I've always had a soft spot in my heart for Henry Knox. And as I was looking Wait for... Wait a second. We can't... <laughs> we got we to stop right there. Uh, Henry Knox. Yes. Why? I love the idea that he owned a bookstore and trained himself to be this general and was this jolly man. I you think he was jolly because he was fat? Well, why, do, I mean, <laughs> why do you say he's jolly? He Is there any evidence that he's jolly? He and his wife are the life of the party. Lucy Fluker Knox? Yes. So yeah. they were supposed to be super fun. And um, <laughs> I just think that that's really cool. I think that... <laughs> Well, it's it's ironic. Well, it's interesting the Knox connection because you know Alan. You know Knox doesn't come off particularly well in Alan Taylor's first book, Liberty Men and Great Proprietors. He's not exactly what I would call fun loving and easy going. <laughs> well, Knox doesn't come off particularly well at very many points in history, which I guess is one of the reasons I kind of liked him. But so I was looking for scholarship on the cabinet and um, didn't find anything, mm. and so initially I thought that was a mistake, mm. and maybe I wasn't looking in the right place. Yeah. And so I kept looking. Well, it is scary when you think you're onto something <laughs> and then you realize there's two major books you just missed somehow. Yeah, so yeah. I just kept looking and didn't find anything. And so then would ask people, well, you know, where else should I look? And continued this process and didn't find anything. And so then started doing some of my own work on it and sort of developed my argument when I didn't find anything. Mm -hmm. And well, that's, that's what we call gap filling in a way. But I, I think it's more than that because you've really got a great historical question that you're asking. Do you want to phrase it or do you want me to, to try to phrase it? You gotta, sure. What, what's the question that your work is going to answer? The question that I'm answering is where does the cabinet come from? It's not in the Constitution and no legislation created it in the 1780s or the 1790s. No additional legislation has been passed to really create outlines of the body. Mm -hmm. And so I started looking at, all right, where, where did it come from and how did it come about? And so my argument is that Washington created it to fill a need and to govern adequately. And he used three things to do so. The first was his military leadership experience um, from the Revolutionary War. The second were the practices that were established in the state governments in the executive branches in the colonial and confederation periods. And the third is the British cabinet and um, the fear of being compared to the British model. And mm. so Washington and his secretaries avoided comparisons because the British cabinet was so hated. That's interesting. That's an, an anti-influence uh, on the, the shape of things. So you put Washington at the center. This is, this is really an important part of his presidential leadership. Yes, absolutely. And the cabinet, I mean, part of my argument is that the cabinet becomes a tool of presidential leadership, and it's very mm. individualized. Mm. And that's really one of the legacies that Washington leaves, is that each president can use the cabinet as they see fit. And so some do really successfully, and some do very poorly. And so it really was Washington's creation, and he used it to, to really help him and his policies. 
Oh, great. Well, we'll get in, let's get into that history soon. <laughs> but before that, let's talk about uh, your, your three examples, well, your two examples and your one counter-influence, I guess, but uh, the military uh, yes. background. So talk a little bit about how uh, Washington used his uh, military experience and background to shape the cabinet. Absolutely. So as uh, commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, Washington developed uh, leadership strategies that worked for him. He called councils of war prior to battles or when trying to decide where to go into winter quarters and even just trying to decide things about like which route they should take. Mm -hmm. um, and he did a couple of different things to make those councils work for him. He often would send out um, questions to be considered ahead of time. Um, he liked to try and control the agenda that way um, and that worked to a certain degree, some of the officers had a lot of personality and really liked to talk. Like Henry Knox? The, jo <laughs> the jovial Henry Knox? No, not Henry Knox. Give me Knox. a ham sandwich, Henry Light Knox? Light Horse Lee was one of the notorious, yeah. um, very wordsy uh, officers. And so what the way he coped with that is afterwards he would ask for written opinions. And that way he knew what everyone was thinking and he could really you know, mull it over. Washington liked to take his time thinking through things, but also it gave him evidence that people supported whatever action he took. So it was very politically astute as well. Wasn't he required by the Continental Congress to hold uh, councils of war? So, or, yes. How did that work? Well, so initially they required him to consult with councils of war, but there was some confusion about the terms of that. Mm. And so he initially held them with great frequency and he was under the impression that he was bound by their decisions and then in I think it's late 1776 there's after the fiasco of New York and all that they um, are trying to kind of figure out how to fix what has been going on and he asks you know to clarify am I bound by my counsel and they say no he would like you to talk with your officers but you can do what you want and so after that he kind of molds it to his own specifications hmm. interesting and he brings all of those practices into the presidency. He will, you know, plan a meeting. He will send out questions ahead of time to control the agenda, and mm -hmm. then afterwards he'll request written opinions. And you see the exact same pattern. So uh, one more thing on the councils of war is: is there anything unique in how Washington's doing it as an 18th century general, or is this very similar to what Lord Cornwallis would be doing, or uh, some German? Uh, general would be doing what? What? What do we know about how his councils of wars fit in with the 18th century council of war? Yeah, I mean, well, a lot of Washington's military practices are inherited from the British, the council of war practice, and also the concept of the official family and the officers and the aides de camp being the family. Washington adopts that practice too. Um, to a certain extent, the outline of the councils look the same, but what? How, how Washington treats them, I think, was different. So, mm. like, Cornwallis was notorious for holding councils, but really just to kind of approve what he had already decided and didn't really care if his officers disagreed with him, and it was much more of a court-type mm. environment, mm. whereas... Well, he was Lord Cornwallis. Yes, exactly. Right. Um, and Washington was not really interested in holding them in that way because that didn't serve him. Mm. He appreciated advice and he knew when advisors were quality advisors and so was actually seeking their opinion. David Hackett Fisher makes a lot of that idea at the, uh, the book on crossing the Delaware. Do you like David Hackett Fisher's interpretation of a military cabinet or do you or do you not a cabinet military council or do you say hey David 
Take it easy. I think there's a lot of merit in that, and I definitely am sort of alluding into some of that. Mm. Um, and I do think that Washington's military background was uh, integral to his cabinet formation. Yeah. Obviously, certain things had to be a little bit different. He mm. wasn't a general as a president, and, and had to recognize that there was the civilian aspect to it, but there's definitely merit in that argument. Yeah, and it seems like in a, in a typical council of war, there'd be much more... Uh, fluidity in terms of who's at any given one. Yes. So you might even have a random civilian that you bring in for yes. some reason. You might, you know, you might have different generals. It depends on who's on the scene. Mm-hmm. Whereas the cabinet, you know, is a fixed body of people that don't change. Yeah. And the councils of war were much larger because yeah. as you mentioned, there were a lot more, there were a lot more officers, but then they did bring in local people mm-hmm. who knew the terrain for, you know, intel and to help them plan mm-hmm. certain tax strategies, um, whereas the cabinet was really only this set group every time. All right, so uh, excellent. So now we've got the one down. What about the state influences, the practices in the colonial states and in the Confederation period that influenced Washington? So the state governments, they all had councils um, in one way or another. They Mm -hmm. were much more established in the constitutions and they were intended really to be more institutional links between the executive and the legislative. Mm -hmm. Usually they were appointed by the legislative branch. They were usually intended to curb the power of the executive. Um, Sometimes the executive was required to consult with them or even obtain their permission to go about doing something. Mm Um, but the concept of a council really comes from these state governments. So it's in people's minds as they're going about creating a government. Um, so that's part of it is just the idea of a council or a cabinet. The second part of it is while Hamilton and Knox were serving with Washington in the army, Jefferson and Edmund Randolph, who was the attorney general, uh, they were also serving during the Revolutionary War, but they were doing so more at the state level. And their experience in Virginia, they were both the Virginia governor in seventeen in the 1780s, um, was was very influential to their time as the cabinet. They in the cabinet, they um, they were very frustrated by the Virginia governorship, and they were very curtailed in their ability to do anything mm. by the Virginia Council of State, mm-hmm. and they resented that. And so you see these instances when they're then in the cabinet and in the presidency where they're encouraging Washington to act in a way that is independent of either the states or Congress and really trying to establish and encourage executive independency. And so I think Mm -hmm. that their experience, you see how it comes into the cabinet and their advice and how they participate in the cabinet as a part of the executive and not as a link between the two. That's very nicely put. I mean, because I think that you think about the colonial uh, governments, many of them would have those those councils, which are in some cases called privy councils even. I mean, mm-hmm. established to be that way. And although in theory they were intended to be, even in the colonial period, a support for the royal governor or the executive, in practice they were often the long-held kind of uh, privilege of, you know, Creole politicians, mm-hmm. and, and so they often were the leaders of opposition against the uh, executive, and so, and then I guess in the Confederation period, they're appointed by the legislature, yeah. so they, they, they aren't serving that role either. It's a really nice um, difference that you point to. 
And they're also paid by the legislature, and their pay is not guaranteed. So they're very much beholden to whatever sort of <laughs> Congress yeah. is going on and um, are really intended for that purpose. Now, were there any governors that we know of who had uh, you know, officers of state that they were meeting with regularly like more like a cabinet that you know weren't officially the the upper house or the council or or something like that but rather you know the attorney general and you know other officers that they would call together uh it's a great question uh the councils that i've come across so far i've looked at virginia and new york and some of the other states pennsylvania they're much more of this sort of council of state mentality right. um but that's something i need to continue to look at mm. as i finish up with my dissertation research because i'm sure there were examples mm. I, maybe, maybe who knows maybe there I mean, were maybe not i mean yeah. there may have been you know state cabinets that evolved after the presidential cabinet sort of a strange reverse influence. But anyway, okay, so, uh, and then you have your big opposition um, uh, theory, which is, <laughs> that, uh, which is the, uh, the British uh, model of the cabinet and, and the, what, what Americans didn't like about it. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so in the Constitutional Convention, as the delegates form to create this new cabinet, Practically every other delegate that talks talks about why something is wrong with the British government and how they need to avoid it um, for every branch of the government and including a council. And there are all of these concerns about if there's a council built into the Constitution, then it's going to be too much like the British Privy Council and we don't want to have a king and we don't want to have a monarch and we don't want to, you know, we want to try and have this separation of powers and there was a real concern that if there was a written council it was going to blend the different branches of government hmm. um, or would be you know this established corrupt body um, and those fears continue in, into the presidency you see all sorts of editorials in the newspaper about the British cabinet and the British Privy Council is responsible for the war and responsible for this hmm. and responsible for that and so um, the, the goal was to try and oppose that sort of thing. And so even in like, eight, I think it's in 18, 1818, Thomas Jefferson is writing his introduction to his memoirs and is, um, is talking about his time in the cabinet and it compares Hamilton to Lord North, mm. who was a very infamous um, British minister. And mm -hmm. it's interesting because that sort of, comparison he, he's not criticizing the cabinet he's not criticizing the fact that Washington created a cabinet or that he continued a cabinet he's criticizing how certain people operated within the cabinet that were too much like British ministers mm -hmm. yeah this notion of, of uh, Hamilton as somebody who's manipulating mm -hmm. the legislation uh, with corrupt relations appointments with people in the bank and and of course Lord North was the Lord Treasurer he wasn't yes he wasn't what we would call the prime minister uh, today. Although he also a comparison office, to um, Robert Walpole. So <laughs> well, Robin Hart. Yeah. So yeah, so I mean it's the same thing in, in the criticism you see in the press, there's not a whole lot of criticism of the cabinet itself as it sort of emerges as this very public institution. Yeah. People aren't upset that it exists, they're upset about how certain people exist within it. All right. Okay, so let's get into then the history that you're telling. This is a brilliant start. And uh, so when does the cabinet exist? It's not in the Constitution. It's not in the Constitution. It's there by the time Washington leaves. Yes. So the first cabinet meeting with all of the participants. And who are all the participants? Who's allowed to be in yes. your cabinet? 
So there's President George Washington, mm-hmm. there's Secretary of War Henry Knox, Secretary of Treasury Alexander Hamilton, Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson, and Attorney General Edmund Randolph. Now, is there any clerks or secretaries around to take notes, or uh, what do we know about that? Sometimes Tobias Lear, who was oh. Washington's personal secretary, mm-hmm. would sit in and take notes. Other times he would, once written opinions were submitted afterwards, he would write up summaries and give them to Washington. Mm-hmm. What about the other guys? Did they ever have a person with them? No. Was John Adams ever in a cabinet meeting or was he occasionally around at a cabinet meeting? So earlier in 1791, in April, Washington um, is out of town. He's on his southern tour. And while he's gone, he authorizes the cabinet without him um, to meet for the first time if a crisis comes up. And if they are going to meet, he says that they need to include Adams. So they end up meeting. Um, Hamilton gets a letter. So Adams essentially would be sitting in for him. Yes. Interesting. So after that, he doesn't really attend official cabinet meetings. There are some times where the participants will meet as part of the sinking fund, Mm -hmm. and it kind of turns into a cabinet meeting because they're all there and they talk about it. Yeah, and that was created by legislation, the sinking fund group that has to make sure that Hamilton's not, you know, sneaky, being sneaky. (laughs) So... um, (laughs) Sometimes inadvertently, Adams is around for these conversations. But hey, guys, what are you doing? <laughs> Let me participate, please. So I know. So, um, so okay. So back. So when was the first cabinet meeting? That was what November twenty sixth, seventeen ninety one. That's definitive. That's what you that's think. The, that's definitive. That's definitive. Are you the first, first person to discover this and um, make this argument? No, I'm the first person to make the argument that cabinet practice didn't crystallize until 1783. Right. But it's pretty widely accepted that the first real one happens in November of 1791. However, people often refer to... The difference is that people often refer to meetings that Washington had with some of the secretaries as cabinet meetings, which I argue isn't really true because the oh, institution... Anachronistic. Yeah, so the, it, it's reading history backwards. Because it's not a thing. It's not a thing until... Does it have to be a thing only after they all meet? Can it be a thing as an advisory capacity without meetings? Well, I would argue that if Washington's just meeting with Jefferson or if he's just meeting with Hamilton, then he's having individual conferences. He's talking about, you know, a letter they wrote him and he wants to make edits to it or Mm. he wants has follow-up questions. But the act of calling everybody together Mm. in a particular place um, and they also, after 1793, they recognize that they're doing this. They start referring to it as the cabinet. After, in 1793? In 1793. What are they doing in November of 1791? What's, is Congress in session? Congress, I do not believe, is in session. Washington wants to discuss the treaties that are currently on the books with France and Great Britain, the commercial treaties. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing ever really comes out of that meeting. Well, um, sounds like a meeting. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Nothing really comes out of it. Um, they meet a handful of times in 1792, but not regularly. And so it's in 1793 when they start having regular weekly, sometimes the end of July and the end of August and all of November, they meet like five times a week. 1793 is a portentous year. It is. It's when the news of the French Republic arrives with the news that the beheading of, of the king yes. and the queen have happened. And they've declared so you tell, war. So you tell me why, why all of a sudden Washington needs to have these cabinet meetings. 
So on. I mean, that's a long time after he started being president. Yes. I mean, he, he was inaugurated in what, April yeah. of seventeen eighty nine. Yep. So you're talking about basically April, May, June of seventeen ninety three. That's that's a whole term. Mm-hmm. So um, in February, France declares war on Great Britain and the Netherlands, mm-hmm. and because the United States previously had this alliance with France, they were very worried about being dragged into this European mm-hmm. war. The economy had just started to kind of pick up and industry was sort of just recovering from the war and everyone agreed that war would be a really bad idea. Everyone in the cabinet? Everyone in the cabinet, pretty much everyone in the country that was relatively reasonable, mm-hmm. recognized. Well, <laughs> you speak for the mainstream. Yes, the, the center right, section yes. agreed okay. that war would be, would be dangerous. Uh-huh. So... Um, no jacket than you. <laughs> so Washington uh, gets news of this war at the beginning of April, and he's still at Mount Vernon, and he is preparing to go back to Philadelphia, mm. and he sends Hamilton and Jefferson a note basically saying, can you start to brainstorm strategies to maintain neutrality? That's a paraphrase. <laughs> That's a paraphrase. <laughs> I don't think he Wouldn't uses the Wouldn't it be nice word. if he wrote it that way? <laughs> boy, yeah, oh boy. No, I don't think he uses the word brainstorm. <laughs> Um, <laughs> would you, I'm, well, I'm or strategies. Would yeah. you start to bring some, some strategies? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm shortening. Good. That's good. Yeah. Um, so then when he gets back to Philadelphia um, mid-April, he calls a meeting on April 19th, the morning, and they meet at his house in his study. And he, prior to that meeting, he sends out a list of 13 questions. And they're about... One for each state of the Union? I guess they have more states by then. Yeah, one for each colony in which you land in the <laughs> there war. There you go. All right, so 13 questions. 13 questions, and they have to do with whether the administration should issue a proclamation of neutrality, should it say neutrality, um, should they accept the new French minister, who was Edmund Charles Genet, if they're going to accept him, how should they accept him, et cetera, et cetera. So they meet on the 19th to discuss these questions. Um, they all pretty quickly come to an agreement that a proclamation should be issued, but it should not say neutrality and that they should accept Genet. And then after that, uh, disagreement quickly disintegrates because Hamilton wants Genet to be accepted with qualifications. Jefferson doesn't. Um, and they can't come to any sort of an agreement. What, what about Knox and, uh, and Randolph? What do they think? Knox almost always sides with Hamilton. Can mm. pretty much be guaranteed. Uh, Jefferson often would say in his private letters that the votes were... Um, two and a half to one and a half, mm. be, which is one of my favorite things that he wrote because yeah. Randolph changed his mind so frequently. You could never tell what side he was going to come down on. Randolph, was, I think he described him as a, as a weak read. <laughs> it's true. It's true. In this instance, I believe he sided with Jefferson. Mm, mm-hmm. um, so after this meeting, Washington requests written opinions for the yeah. rest of the questions um, and then calls another meeting a couple days later to try and nail out some of these details yeah and um, it continues from there they meet regularly the issue of neutrality continues to be challenging um, the main one of the, by the end of that summer Jefferson's trying to resign yes so is Hamilton I think yes. or talking about it yes um, so um, so 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 okay well here's the question then so if the cabinet is first <laughs> first actually something real yeah in that crisis um, and it immediately leads to two people wanting to <laughs> resign, although I think Hamilton asked to resign a year earlier. I, I don't know. You could look into that. But um, So 
how effective it was it as a as a you know as a method of leadership here so one thing that i'm looking at and one of the things that i'm i argue is that hamilton and jefferson obviously didn't get along prior to 1793 by 1792 they were at each other's throats they were whining to washington all the time about the other one and so perhaps it was partly a political strategy to Mm. stick them in the same room and say, you know, talk through issues to make sure everyone had the same information. No one could, it kind of cut down on the possibility of people having private meetings Mm -hmm. and no one could claim that they weren't a part of these decisions. Yes, well, it kind of forces a unanimity amongst them all. Exactly, exactly. So that in public, at least, they can't really go against it. Exactly, so... It's very much. Any <laughs> it really is opposition, yeah. Um, and uh, Jefferson re- writes many years later this great quote where that he and Hamilton were pitted daily like cocks in Washington's cabinet, mm. and that that language is so um, intense because the cockfight is you know you have two highly ambitious males that are facing each other and are all riled up and their talons are sharpened and they fight to the death and it's like this very bloody gory image it was entertaining too it's people pay money to see this yes exactly but, <clears> which, know, a, which a lot of people today would have loved, would pay money to see they that they're paying money. money for the hamilton play right now <laughs> exactly. where he's got the, uh, exactly. the cabinet meetings are like uh what are they what do they call it the, the rap-offs you know they, what are they yeah no exactly yeah. it's um so I think that that language is it really demonstrates sort of the hostility, yeah. and this was one way of Washington coping with that hostility and trying to make them sort of fight it out. All right, so how does it evolve after that crisis? Then that crisis lasts through the summer. I mean, there's some court cases of great note, and and then there's then there's well, there's a growing opposition and the the rise of the Democratic Republican you know um, groups and all that. So how does the cabinet evolve? Yeah, so the cabinet continues to meet regularly. The main issue is the privateers. What is regular? Weekly? Monthly? Quarterly? So, um, through the rest of 1793, they meet at least once a week, except for when there's the yellow fever outbreak in the fall. Mm. They all kind of flee to separate places, except for Hamilton, who's stuck because he's sick. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, so aside from that time, they meet at least once a week. Um, Other weeks, and most of November, they meet up to five times a week. Mm. Um, and sometimes it's just to discuss these big issues, and sometimes it's, you know, how are we going to deliver to Genet the fact that he has been recalled? Are we going right. to tell him, or are we going to let his government tell him that yeah. kind of thing? Um, so then after 1793, Jefferson retires. Um, Randolph takes his spot. And then in the end of 1794, I think, is when Hamilton retires. Um, and so... You continue to have fairly regular meetings. Usually it's maybe once a week, once every couple weeks. It kind of settles back into a situation of is there a diplomatic issue? Is there a constitutional issue? Is there a domestic issue? And Washington always sets the agenda. Yes. And he often, when if the issue has been decided and they're trying to figure out small details, if he's out of town, he'll instruct them to meet Mm. and to report back what their opinions are. So he definitely calls the shots about when they're meeting, what they're talking about, how frequently it's going to take place. Mm. And and if there's anything that the executive branch is issuing or taking action on, how does he define who writes it up? I mean, does he just assign it based on which department is most involved i guess or yeah it, it's which department technically would have jurisdiction so mm-hmm. for diplomatic things it all goes through jefferson initially and then goes through randolph but randolph also takes the during the whiskey rebellion 
Randolph really takes center stage in terms of writing everything. Mm -hmm. He's the one that um, he writes these great letters to Mifflin, who is the mm -hmm. governor of Pennsylvania. And Mifflin really wants to be in charge of it. And Randolph, it's one of the few times Randolph really puts him in his place. And mm -hmm. it's great. It's excellent letter writing. <laughs> it's really entertaining <laughs> stuff. Um, and so it really depends what, what the issue is. But for the most part, he sticks yeah. to his department. So poor Randolph has a bad end as Secretary of State. He does. How does that affect the cabinet and... In, in Washington's administration? Well, once Randolph is, uh, once he resigns, and he's sort of unceremoniously booted out, um, the replacements just really aren't up to snuff. They're mm. really second tier. And when Randolph was still in office, Washington turns to him a lot more once Jefferson and Hamilton are gone. Because mm. he does have a really good legal mind. And a lot of legal What does Knox leave? Knox leaves right after the Whiskey Rebellion because he's not around, and Washington's really pissed about it. Yeah, really. He's quite angry, <laughs> he's I He's really angry. Yes. He retires right after that. <laughs> it's important to make Washington to like demonstrate why isn't you? Why isn't Knox there? I mean, he's up like looking at his land in, in northern Maine or something, isn't he? He's not, yes. I mean, Hamilton goes out with the army. He's the yes. Secretary of the Treasury. Yes. Um, so Knox was tending to his land and his estate in Maine mm -hmm. and his mm -hmm. family and his wife. He did not come for money and was very concerned about having this land and this estate. And I think at that point he was also old and tired and he just didn't want to do it anymore. He wasn't that old and tired. He's younger than Washington by 10 years at least. He was 25. can all be Washington. No, <laughs> so anyway, so he's up in Maine and, yeah. um... Then so he, have, he departs. He parts ways with Washington, not on good terms. Is that not on good terms. Yeah, they yeah. they are not. He asks him for his resignation, or yeah. he doesn't. He yeah. um he. I'm happy to accept your resignation. <laughs> He's General a, yes, exactly. He is happy to accept it, and they're actually still relatively friendly. When they really have their break is during Adams' administration, when right. um, yes, mm -hmm. when Washington is appointing generals, and he says that Hamilton can be appointed above Knox and Knox is really pissed but right before um, right before um, Washington dies they do sort of patch things up a little bit well isn't that convenient yes yeah, okay so uh, so Knox is gone mm -hmm. Jefferson and Hamilton are gone and Randolph is gone and yes. who, who do we have who's the who's the B team <laughs> Um, so we have uh, Wolcott becomes the new yeah. Secretary of the Treasury. Oliver Wolcott served, Jr. Yes, yeah. mm -hmm. who had served underneath Hamilton. Right. Yeah. Then you have James McHenry, who is the new Secretary of War. Then you have um, uh, Pickering. Is that what yep. he, Yeah, he's the new um, Secretary of State. Timothy Pickering. Yes. Um, and so, do they, who do they miss? Then there's the, who's the new attorney general? There's one guy who's there for a couple of months. Yeah, that's right. And then there's another one. I mean, yeah. obviously should know that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> at that point, the cabinet yeah. is, I mean, it's so clearly Is it still meeting? Tier. It is still meeting, though. I mean, it is, is it meeting regularly? It, All, the last week of Washington's time as president, does the cabinet The cabinet, meet? it doesn't meet as regularly. It, it meets if no. there is a serious issue. It continues to be, it continues to mm. be a thing where if there is a crisis, if there's a diplomatic issue, it still does meet. It offers opinions. Mm -hmm. Um Towards the end of Washington's term, he's still consulting regularly with Hamilton, and so so is his entire cabinet. 
Um, so that that is a little bit different and all. So did, did Washington uh, continue to consult with Hamilton uh, sort of regularly right after Hamilton left, or does Hamilton get drawn back in at some point when Washington feels like he needs better advice? Pretty much right away. Right away. So he yeah, because really... he plays, he continues to be offering advice and playing a role during mm-hmm. Randolph's resignation mm-hmm. and all of these things. And so he continues mm-hmm. to provide advice. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if the other secretaries knew that Washington was consulting with him or if they consulted with him on their own. Um, obviously, Wolcott had worked with Hamilton, so mm-hmm. that sort of makes sense. And McHenry had served with him during the Revolutionary War. But they all continued to consult with him long after Washington had gone. So one of the the things that John Adams is often accused of uh, in terms of the weakness of his presidency is that he keeps Washington's cabinet, the Mm -hmm. second-tier cabinet, which are all beholden to Hamilton in some way or feel beholden to Washington and not to Adams himself. Yes. How had the understanding of a cabinet, which is brand new, Mm -hmm. as you're showing, how had that influenced Adams's decision to retain them, do you think? Or uh, was it really just more about the inability to get capable people to take these jobs? No, I don't think it was about the inability to get capable people because Jefferson does a you know whole sweep mm. of the cabinet mm. and brings in his own people. Right. I think Adams recognized that he had a really, really hard role filling Washington's shoes. The, whoever was going to be the second president, it was going to be really difficult. Um, I don't think anyone would have had a particularly good time of it. Um, and so I think that as a way to try and provide... You don't think anybody would have had a particularly good time of it? You're absolving Adams. No, no, I am not absolving <laughs> him. I mean, it would have been helpful if he had stayed in the capital city a little bit more and then perhaps a yeah. little bit more present. Mm-hmm. But um, I think that no matter who it was, it was always kind of going to be a crap time you because no down. one could yeah. be compared to Washington and come out mm-hmm. looking you know, bright and shiny. Um, so I think that he was trying to provide some continuity and, mm. um, you know, there were, there was a lo- still a lot of diplomatic tension at the time. There were a lot of concerns about how was the new nation going to mm. go through this transition. And so he was trying to provide some stability and some calmness mm. and perhaps retain some institutional knowledge, mm. which obviously backfired tremendously because the cabinet was borderline treasonous, but it was a, I think it was a well-intentioned decision. <laughs> well, so this is very exciting because you're in the phase now and you're in your dissertation where you know what you want to say and now you're just kind of finishing it up, getting it together. Yes. Uh, where do you want to take this work looking forward? I mean, I know that's a bit of a, a bit difficult because you're so in the in the weeds Maybe. right now. But, you know, are you interested in the legacy of the cabinet later on? Or are you more interested in, you know, popular attitudes towards the cabinet? Are you abandoning the cabinet for... For greener, uh, <laughs> more welcoming pastures? Such a million dollar question. Um, well, I mean, first things first, I would love to publish this of course, um, yeah. mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. a book. And mm-hmm. then, uh, I don't know, I, I see so many different angles. I could continue looking at the cabinet as it progresses, or I could look at mm-hmm. different aspects of it. Um, there are a lot of, I think there are a lot of constitutional implications, and so that's something I could look at, although that's really murky water, so I have mm-hmm. to make sure I really have my courage up before I do that. So mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't really know. I mean, I definitely want to stay in the political history government mm-hmm. realm. That's where my mm-hmm. passion has always been. And my passion has always been in the revolutionary early republic period, mm-hmm. so I don't see myself going too much farther from that. Um, 
I also have a soft spot for John Quincy Adams, which I know you find abhorrent. Oh, but yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. the Adams is in general, I find uh, difficult. Oh, to they're deal so with. great. Yes, well, oh, they're so funny. Um, yeah, they're very clever. There's no doubt. Well, and John Quincy just doesn't didn't have patience for anyone because he was too smart, and so that's just really entertaining. But um, Quincy's an interesting character. There's no doubt. Yeah. yeah. So I think that that's probably what I'm looking at. But I'm I'm open to inspiration striking. And taking it from there. Well, so one final thing then. So you've been working on the dissertation when you're you're at Mount Vernon. Um, every time when you're writing something, it's evolved as as you're thinking it through. I mean, the, the writing process is, is is part of thinking it through. But how do you think at Mount Vernon and being here in in the Washington Library has uh, what what ways has the project evolved that even you don't think would have happened if you weren't here? Well, the constitutional stuff. Um, so I didn't know about the Acts of Congress until I came here. Washington had a copy of the Acts of Congress and the Constitution printed in um, September of 1789, and in it made a number of notations um, in Article 2, uh, Section 2, and Section 3. And in Article, in Section 2, he writes President Powers next to the clauses that say he can request written advice or he can consult with the Senate and in section 3 where it says he shall from time to time give Congress an update on the State of the Union it says required so he drew a distinction between things he was required to do and things that he could use to govern effectively and that's something I'm still working through mm -hmm. um, but to me the cabinet is a reflection of a more creative form of governing. He was creative with how he was going to approach these challenges. And so that is totally new for me. And had mm -hmm. I not known about that document, I wouldn't have been able to even contemplate that sort of thinking. So I found out about it the first week I was here and almost started to cry because I was so excited. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's been the, the real big shift for me. Wow, Eureka. Well, that's a fantastic I know. Moment. It's such a great moment. Uh, it's really well, exciting. Wonderful. Well, you've been a delight to be here in the yeah. library and we all look forward to seeing this work as it evolves, and I know it'll be a very good book. So. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to it being out there. We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you and we'll see you next week.